0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 262, The Trinity Before Nicaea This episode of the Trinity's Podcast is my edit of a really good presentation by Pastor Sean Finnegan. This was given in April of 2019 at the Theological Conference near Atlanta, which is sponsored by Anthony Buzzard's Restoration Fellowship. Through many years of study, Pastor Finnegan and I have both learned that the Achilles' heel of present-day evangelical apologists on the topics of Trinity and Incarnation is actual known history of theology. They're not good at it. They tend to use it very sloppily and very selectively. These known facts about the development of Trinity theories falsify their view that Christians have always been Trinitarian and that what has basically evolved is just the language with which Christians express this Trinitarian faith. What these apologists will typically do is just amass a list of early church fathers referring to Jesus as God or as a God but if it's Trinity theories we're looking for, this won't do, as Pastor Finnegan explains in this presentation. He decides to work with some blog posts by evangelical apologist Matt Slick, and the definition of the Trinity he uses is that put forward by that same evangelical apologist. In brief, the quotations just don't show what he wants them to show. Whatever your position on the Trinity is, see if you agree or disagree with the points he's making. Thanks to Pastor Finnegan for letting us present this on the Trinity's podcast. If you want to see his own video edit of this presentation, complete with his slides, or if you want to download the full paper in PDF, I've got a link to his website, restitutio.org, where you can get those things. Here, then, is Pastor Finnegan's presentation, The Trinity Before Nicaea.
2: Thank you. You can find me online at restitutio.org, and that word, restitutio, is just uh, simply the Latin word for restoration. And that's really kind of the driving motivation behind what I want to say today, which is that I'm curious what the earliest Christians believed. And my driving question for this research project was, did Christians believe in the Trinity before A.D. 325 at the Council of Nicaea when the church decided, or a bunch of people decided, that the Father is of the same substance as the Son, or the Son is of the same substance as the Father? That's my question. Did Christians believe in the Trinity before 325? And as soon as I asked that question, because I'm somebody who studies church history I know that I'm going to face a major methodological hurdle because Christians before 325, there's still 300 years worth of Christianity there, not counting the New Testament or anything like that. Christians have written thousands of pages during that period. So it's a little bit difficult to uh, prove a negative or it's much easier to prove a positive right? You just find one one source. So I did probably what any one of you would do, and I did an internet search, and I looked up the phrase Trinity before Nicaea, thinking surely somebody has already done the work and can identify for us the proof texts from these different Christian authors in the first 300 years, and then I can just use that person's work. And so the first two search results I found on multiple search engines was a website called CARM.org, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, Matt Slick's website, and you can see it dominates the first two search results for Trinity before Nicaea. And I clicked on the first article there, the Trinity before Nicaea, I thought, oh, this is going to be the one, but it was only one quotation and it was it was pretty questionable. So I, I was kind of let down there. But then the second article I clicked on, Early Trinitarian Quotes, and I was delighted to find in a little article here outlining six different Christian authors that he says provide definitive proof that Christians believed in the Trinity before Nicaea. So what a great place to start for research Not to have to read thousands and maybe tens of thousands of pages, but to have this little post here. And, uh, you know, I don't pick Matt Slick because he's a a church history scholar. I don't think he is, to my knowledge at least. Uh, But I, I pick him because he represents a standard evangelical position on this, and he is number one on that search phrase in multiple search engines. So if you're going to look into this question, this is who you're going to find. And uh, you can see here, he quotes Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen. So those are, those are his six sources right here. And there, there's a picture of Matt Slick and uh, the six sources. So what I would like to do with you is go through each of these six different quotations that he provides. Some of them he provides more than one quote, but I want to go through all of them with you and really just ask the question, does this provide evidence that Christians believe in the Trinity before Nicaea and take it from there? In order to really accomplish this, I had to nail down the definitional question, what is the Trinity? because there are different Trinity theories out there. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of that, but there are different ways to think about the Trinity. And so I I thought the fairest way to do it would be to judge Matt Slick's six Trinitarian quotes based on Matt Slick's own definition of the Trinity, which I found on his website. I was very delighted. He has a, a page there called the Trinity Chart, where he defines the Trinity in his own words. And from that, I've extracted out these 10 points. One, God is a Trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Two, each person is distinct from the other two. Three, each person is the one God. Four, the persons consist of one substance. Five, each person is eternal. Six, each person is equal to the others, presumably in status. Seven, each person is equally powerful. Eight, God does not exist without any of the three persons. Nine, Jesus has two natures in the hypostatic union. And number 10, the Holy Spirit is self-aware. So, This is not from like a confession or a famous creed. This is from Matt Slick. This is his own definition, so we're going to judge his own quotes by his own definition and see how that helps us to kind of get at this question. Did Christians believe in the Trinity before 325? So you ready to go? Here we go. First up is a quote from Polycarp. O Lord God Almighty, I bless you and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be glory to you with him, and the Holy Spirit, both now and forever. Well, there are a couple of problems here. Problem number one is that this isn't written by Polycarp. That's a little awkward. It might have been said by Polycarp. I'll give that as a a possibility. But Polycarp only wrote one thing that survived to today, a letter to the Philippians. And this is from the martyrdom of Polycarp, which scholars do recognize is very early and has a historic core. Uh, There are some more cinematic elements to it that I think would lead you to believe it's been embellished significantly, but uh, it's not clear whether this prayer that Polycarp does in the midst of this book called the martyrdom of Polycarp is actually historical to Polycarp. Okay. But let's just assume it is right. Let's just give them that. What does this prayer here have to say about the Trinity? Now, remember, these are our 10 points that we want to find in these quotes. Which of these 10 points do we find in this quote here? I mean, there's nothing about person. There's nothing about eternality or equality or substance. You know, he's just praying. He says, oh, Lord God Almighty. Now, this is even better once you realize that this little part right here, we call that an ellipsis. Let's just expand that out a little bit and see what else Polycarp said. It says, oh, Lord God Almighty. And this is the part that Slick omitted. Father of your beloved and blessed son, Jesus Christ. So he <laughs> it's pretty clear who Polycarp is praying to. Lord God Almighty, whom he identifies as the Father of Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers of all creation, of the whole race, and the righteous who live in your presence, I bless you. There's more in there, but then it goes on. I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ. I mean, this prayer could have easily been prayed by a Unitarian, by a Gnostic, by an Arian. I mean, it's totally ambiguous what his beliefs are, But it doesn't seem that he thinks that the Son is at the same level as the Father here, because he identifies the Lord God as solely the Father of Jesus. So I'm going to go ahead and conclude that Polycarp was not a Trinitarian. But alas, we have five more. Number two, Justin Martyr. For in the name, this is the quote from him, for in the name of God, the Father, and Lord of the universe, and of our Savior Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, they then receive washing with water. Now we've got a couple of points here that are important to notice. First up is the fact that this is not really much more than simply quoting Matthew 28:19. And pretty much all Christians believe in Matthew 28:19, whether they believe in the Trinity or they don't believe in the Trinity, Christians generally accept Matthew 28:19 as evidenced by the, uh, the blank spot in the textual critical commentary about that passage. There's actually no manuscript variance there whatsoever. That's another subject that we could talk about. But look at this little part that Justin puts in. Of course, Matthew 28, 19 says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? You guys know that. But what does Justin add in? He adds in this part where it says, the Father and Lord of the universe. So he's adding it a little bit more to specify who he thinks God is. And this is not a tripartite God. Let me read it again. For in the name of God, the Father and Lord of the universe, and of our Savior Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. This quote is evidence that Justin believed that the Father was the only true God. It's not a good Trinitarian quote, I would would suggest. I would conclude that Justin Martyr, at least on the strength of this quote, is not a Trinitarian. Scholars know this. Justin Martyr is a subordinationist. In one place, his first apology, chapter eight, he calls Jesus in the second place. He says Jesus in the second place to God. So we press on. Third up, we have Ignatius of Antioch. He writes, in Christ Jesus, our Lord, by whom and with whom be glory and power to the Father, with the Holy Spirit forever. So, we have a couple of problems here that I want to mention. First of all, as with Polycarp, this is not actually Ignatius. This is a later forged document called the Martyrdom of Ignatius, uh, generally recognized to be inauthentic by people that do church history. But I'm not going to press that. Let's just look at it for what it is and see see what we think. Where's the Trinity here? Where is it? In Christ Jesus, our Lord, by whom and with whom be glory and power to the Father with the Holy Spirit, forever. Where's the Trinity there? I mean, you can't just mention Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me give you an analogy. Think of uh, the task of trying to prove somebody is a patriot, somebody's patriotic. You can't just find some random sentence where they mention George Washington and conclude, well, you know, Anthony Buzzard said George Washington, therefore Anthony Buzzard is an American patriot. Well, he's British, so you know maybe he is, maybe he's not. Probably not, but anyhow, he, there must be something he likes about this country. He lives here for a long time now. But uh, you know, just just citing Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, what if what if you just were making a factual statement about that person? It doesn't prove that you're a patriot or not. It just proves that you're mentioning that person. So so it is here, just mentioning Christ Jesus our Lord or the Father and the Holy Spirit. None of this proves that this person believed in the Trinity. And we have another quote from the same book. This is the martyrdom of Ignatius, chapter 2, where this author, probably not Ignatius, says, "...thou art in error when thou callest the demons of the nation's God, for there is but one God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that are in them, and one Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, whose kingdom may I enjoy." Does not sound very Trinitarian, whoever this was that wrote this. On to the next Ignatius quote that Slick provides. This is from his Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter seven, where this is the long recension. For those of you familiar with Ignatius's different uh, the different versions of him, he writes, "We have also, as a physician, the Lord our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son and Word before time began, but who afterward became also man of Mary the Virgin." For the word was made flesh, being incorporeal. He was in the body, being impassable. He was in a passable body, being immortal. He was in a mortal body, being life. He became subject to corruption, that he might free our souls from death and corruption and heal them and might restore them to health when they were diseased with ungodliness and wicked lusts. Whew, that's a mouthful. So first of all, I just want to mention that this is from the, the epistles of Ignatius. This is uh, very much a, a discussed and debated question which Ignatius is Ignatius, because there are lots of forgeries of Ignatius's epistles, and we have really three versions, the short version, the middle version, and the long version. And many scholars are convinced that the long version is a later Arian forgery of Ignatius's earlier writings, and it's just so ironic that Slick is going to quote from the Arian version to prove the Trinity, because if we back up just one sentence, we will find the following, but our physician is the only true God the unbegotten and unapproachable, the Lord of all, the Father and begetter of the only begotten Son. We have also, as a physician, the Lord our God, Jesus the Christ, the only begotten Son and Word before time began, and it goes on from there. So this is clearly an Arian position that this author is laying out, most likely corrupting an earlier form that Ignatius had, but it's not good evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity. I would give it an F. So... What am I saying? Ignatius, from the quotes that we've seen here, is not a Trinitarian. Now, on the question of calling Jesus God, I will return to that later. That's an important subject we need to get to. But lots of different kinds of Christians and Christologies will use the phrase, Jesus is God, but they mean different things by it. So, you can't just quote Jesus is God as if that means he believed Jesus is God in a Trinitarian way.
1: When the Trinity's podcast returns... Pastor Finnegan discusses some quotations from some more early Christian theologians.
2: on to the next one. It's going to get a little more interesting here. Irenaeus, the church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. One God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents and the birth from a virgin and the passion and the resurrection from the dead. and the These are long quotes, sorry, you just have to bear with me here. And the ascension into heaven and the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus, our Lord, and his manifestation from heaven and the glory of the Father, to gather all things in one and to raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race in order that to Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the Invisible Father, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth that every tongue should confess to him that he should execute just judgments toward all. Question, where's the Trinity? Did anybody spot it? I missed it. I saw where he said there's one God, the Father. I saw where Irenaeus said there's also one Christ Jesus that he believes in, apart from the one God, the Father. There was this one little interesting part here where he calls Jesus Lord and God but apparently so did Thomas in John 20:28 20, so it's it's not clear that Irenaeus in any way believes in the trinity doctrine here furthermore we have many of uh, his other statements that are that are really strong in the other direction here not in a trinitarian direction this is against heresies 192 Irenaeus says For when John, proclaiming one God, the Almighty, and one Jesus Christ, the only begotten, by whom all things were made, declares that this was the Son of God. So look, who does he think God is? The one God is the Almighty. And, then you have in a separate category, and one Jesus Christ. Sounds like Irenaeus thinks the one God is just the Father. Against Heresies 391 says, The Lord himself handing down to his disciples that he, the Father, is the only God and Lord, who alone is God and ruler of all. Question, is that an ambiguous statement? There's nothing confusing about that. He says, look, he, the Father, is the only God and Lord, who alone is God. I mean, what else do you want him to say to prove to you that he believes that God is the, the Father is the only one who's God? That's what Irenaeus believed. Now, he also called Jesus God, but it's in a different sense, and we'll get to that later. Against Heresies 3, 6, 4, Irenaeus says, wherefore, I do also call upon the Lord God of Abraham... And God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, and Israel, who art the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, who through the abundance of thy mercy has had a favor toward us that we should know thee, who has made heaven and earth, who rulest over all, who art the only and the true God, above whom there is none other God. I mean, once again, he's laboring the point. The only and true God. There's no other God other than He. By our Lord Jesus Christ, the governing power of the Holy Spirit give to every reader of this book to know thee that thou art God alone to be strengthened in thee and to avoid every heretical and godless and impious doctrine. Summary. Irenaeus doesn't sound like a Trinitarian. He doesn't talk like a Trinitarian, and we've seen no evidence that he believed in the Trinity whatsoever. However, we have seen evidence that he identifies over and over the Father as the one who is above all. This is the doctrine we call subordinationism, that the Father is superior to the Son. And so we conclude that Irenaeus is not a Trinitarian either. One last quote against Heresies five, eighteen, two, 2, he says, and thus one God the Father is declared who is above all and through all and in all. The Father is indeed above all, and he is the head of Christ. But the Word is through all things, and is himself the head of the church, while the Spirit is in us all, and he is the living water, which the Lord grants to those who rightly believe in him, to love him, and who know that there is one Father who is above all, and through all, and in us all. This is not fuzzy. This is clear as day. He thought the Father was superior. So Irenaeus, I conclude, is not a Trinitarian either. Now we get to Tertullian. Now it's going to get really exciting because those of you familiar with church history know that he's the first one to use the term trinitas, which is the Latin word for trinity. So obviously Tertullian believed in the trinity because he invented the word trinity, at least in Latin. So this is going to be all kinds of fun. This is the quote we have from his Against Praxius that Slick provides. We define that there are two, the father and the Son, and three with the Holy Spirit, and this number is made by the pattern of salvation. All right, so if we're looking for the Trinity, we should start getting excited here a little bit, right? At least we finally have three. All those quotes we've seen so far, we didn't even have the word three. All right, this is good. This is good if we're looking for the Trinity. And this is the number is made by the pattern of salvation, which belongs about unity and Trinity. Oh yeah, this is the stuff we're looking for, right? Interrelating the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, They are three, not in dignity, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in kind. They are of one substance and power because there is one God from whom these degrees, forms, and kinds devolve in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, it really, really looks pretty promising if you're looking for evidence on the Trinity. We have the word Trinity. We have the words one substance, right, that you find later at Nicaea of one substance. We have uh, one God, In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This guy's a Trinitarian, right? Not so fast. (laughs) Not so fast. This term Trinity here is is interesting to me. You notice how it's lowercase? I don't know if that's a Matt Slick typo or if that was in the version he was working with, but it's actually a lowercase t on Trinity. And uh, the word Trinity, Trinitas, triad in uh, English is probably a better translation. It's just a grouping of three things or persons, or whatever. So, you know, if you say, well, I love swimming and running and biking, that's a good trinity you have there. It's nothing theological about it, it's just a collection of of three things. As evidenced by the first guy who used the term trinity in Greek, which was Theophilus of Antioch, Probably in the 170s, in his to Autolycus chapter 2:15, says, But the moon wanes monthly and in a manner dies, being a type of man. Then it is born again and is crescent for a pattern of the future resurrection. In like manner, also the three days which were before the luminaries are types of the Trinity, triados, of God and his word and his wisdom. What do you think about that? That's interesting, huh? We don't have three persons. We have God and his word and his wisdom. His word, it's not clear here that his word refers to a person. God has his his word that he speaks, his wisdom that he uses to think with, right? These are attributes of God. I mean, later on, we find very clear evidence that Christians thought of the word in different ways, right, or the wisdom in different ways. But at this point, that's not at all clear. His trinity doesn't have the Holy Spirit in it which one's missing here, right? Sophia, wisdom, is not the same as the Holy Spirit. And yet he's able to use this term, Trinity, triados, as a reference to a grouping of three, the first of which is God, and the second of which is his word, the third of which is his wisdom. So let's go back to uh, Tertullian here. So we, we have to be careful not to read Tertullian anachronistically, reading in later Trinitarian thoughts into his words. We have to let him define what he means by his words. Okay, so this is from the same book that Slick quoted from, Against Praxius, chapter 9, and uh, we read here that the father is not the same as the son, since they differ one from another in the mode of their being. For the father is the entire substance, but the son is a derivation and portion of the whole, as he himself acknowledges my father is greater than I. In the psalm, his inferiority is described as being a little lower than the angel's. Thus, the Father is distinct from the Son, being greater than the Son, inasmuch as he who begets is one, and he who is begotten is another, he too who sends is one, and he too who is sent is another, and he again who makes is one, and he through whom the thing is made is another. All right, what do we have in this quote? Number one, he says they differ. The Father and the Son differ. Okay, Sean, sure they differ, but that's because the Son had to be incarnate, So he's functionally subordinate to the Father. That's not what Tertullian is saying here. He's saying, in their being, they differ. He goes on. The Son is a derivation. The Son is not original. He's a derivation. A portion of the whole. This is not the doctrine of the Trinity, as, you know, really anybody understands it, to to my knowledge. And then he goes on to say, the Father is distinct from the Son, being greater than the Son. This is not co-equal. This is not co-eternal or consubstantial. This is not the doctrine of the Trinity. It's an unusual theory, it's an interesting theory that Tertullian has, but it's not recognizably Trinitarian by, you know, the standards that we have here. What about everyone else? I came across this tantalizing quote from Tertullian. This is worth the whole price of admission right here. The simple that's like people that, that are not Tertullian. He's educated, right? So the simple is like everybody else. The simple, indeed, I will not call them unwise and unlearned. He's so humble, isn't he? Um, I will not call them unwise and unlearned, who always constitute the majority of believers, are startled at the dispensation of the three in one on the ground that their very rule of faith withdraws them from the world's plurality of gods to the one and only true God. Not understanding that although he is the one only God... He must yet be believed in his own economia, economy. The numerical order and distribution of the Trinity they assume to be a division of the unity, whereas the unity which derives the Trinity out of its own self is so far from being destroyed that it is actually supported by it. They are constantly throwing out against us that we are preachers of two gods and three gods, while they take to themselves preeminently the credit of being worshippers of the one God. What do we see? He's talking about most people. He's talking about most Christians here. The majority, he says, of believers are startled at Tertullian's theory of this whole three in one and different substances. And it's not quite what we would later call the Trinity, but it's it's definitely an innovation. It's speculative. It's it's, uh, creative theology, we might call it. Uh, And he says, people don't like this idea. You know, it's just because they're dumb. But they don't like this idea. And he's saying the majority don't like his idea. And then he goes on to say that the majority of Christians in his town, Carthage, North Africa, 3rd century, what do they call Tertullian? They say, Tertullian, hey, buddy, you're worshiping two gods. You're worshiping three gods, not us. We're worshipers of the one God. That's an interesting quotation, isn't it? A little historical fragment there that we find. So in conclusion on Tertullian... From the sounds of this, most believers in this area at this time were Unitarian, because that's what it means, worshiping only one God, and they're rejecting this two- or three-part God. And two, they thought Tertullian's ideas were unacceptable innovations. They thought he was inventing things. He wasn't being a conservative. He wasn't conserving what had been passed down. What he was presenting to them contradicted their rule of faith. The rule of faith is a conservative thing that's been passed down. as as the church fathers typically use it. So he believed the Father, Son, and Spirit were of the same substance. is true, but not the same amount for each. And so he also did not believe in co-equality, which means that in the end, Tertullian, who coined the word Trinity in Latin, is actually not a Trinitarian.
1: When the Trinity's podcast returns, Pastor Finnegan discusses the famous early scholar Origen.
2: We've got one more source before we ask some questions about method, because I think we're 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 getting let down over and over again. We keep thinking we're going to find that golden gem. You know, this is the number one result on Google. I mean, how, it can't possibly be wrong. We have to find it. Here we have Origin. If you're looking for the Trinity, this is going to wet your whistle. Let me tell you. <laughs> so these are three quotes that Slick provides to us from De Principiis, which is uh, Origin's book on first principles. That's the English version of it. If anyone would say that the word of God or the wisdom of God had a beginning, let him beware lest he direct his impiety rather against the unbegotten father since he denies that he was always father and that he has always begotten the word and that he has always had wisdom in all previous times or ages or whatever can be imagined in priority. There can be no more ancient title of the almighty God than that of father and it is through the son that he is the father. What is he arguing for here? That the son is eternal. And if you don't agree that the Son is eternal, then you're saying that the Father wasn't a father before the Son came into existence. And that, every Platonist knows. You can't have a change in God. He says that's that's impious. You can't accuse God of changing from not being a father to becoming a father. Therefore, the Son has to be eternal. That's the strength of that argument there. All right, number two quote says, for if the Holy Spirit were not eternally as he is and had received knowledge at some time and then became the Holy Spirit this were the case, the Holy Spirit would never be reckoned in the unity of the Trinity, along with the unchangeable Father and His Son, unless He had always been the Holy Spirit. So now we're looking for the eternity of the Holy Spirit, and we have this idea of unity of the Trinity. So this is sounding very uncannily Trinitarian, much better than Tertullian. Then Origen goes on to say in the last one, moreover, nothing in the Trinity can be called greater or less, co-equality. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Since the fountain of divinity alone contains all things by his word and reason and by the spirit of his mouth sanctifies all things which are worthy of sanctification. So if I take Matt Slick's original 10 points on what he says the Trinity is and I take these quotations that he just provided, Origen's points, what do we have? Number one, Matt Slick says, God is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Origen agrees. The Father, Word, Son, Wisdom, and Spirit, he uses personal pronouns for them. Number two, each person is distinct from the others. Origen agrees. The Father is distinct from the Son, is distinct from the Spirit. Number three, each person is the one God. Origin says Father, Son, and Spirit in the unity of the Trinity. Pretty similar. Number four, the persons consist of one substance. He doesn't have that. It's not mentioned. Number five, each person is eternal. He says the word and the spirit are eternal. Number six, each person is equal to the others. Number six, for origin, nothing in the Trinity can be called greater or less. Number seven, each person is equally powerful, not mentioned. Number eight, God does not exist without any of the three persons. Origin says, it is impious to deny the eternity of the Son, since that would mean the Father wasn't always the Father. You need all of the persons all the time. Number nine, Jesus has two natures in the hypostatic union. Origin's not that fancy, he doesn't get into it. Number ten, the Holy Spirit is self-aware. Origen uses the word he to refer to the Holy Spirit, which sounds like a personal pronoun to me. So, what do we have here? You know, if I had a bell up here, I'd be like, ding, 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 ding. These three quotes that Slick provides, unquestionably Trinitarian. Wouldn't want to argue with that. You know, I think I think we should be excited to have found something. Because I know some of you are getting a little, little depressed there. Like, Sean, show me the money. Where is it going to be? But uh, here's the problem with Origin. First of all, Origen wrote a lot. By one estimate, 6,000 rolls, or roughly chapters in our equivalent, course, they called them books, but we call them chapters. At one point in his life, Origen had seven stenographers taking down dictation in turns. So fast was he churning out material. I mean, this guy wrote commentaries on everything. He wrote sermons on everything. He wrote the first parallel Bible, the hexaplus, six columns. He's got the Hebrew and all these Greek versions, right? I mean, he was a real scholar, trained in the finest institution of his time in Alexandria. So a lot of his stuff didn't survive, but a lot of it did. You know, enough of his stuff survives so that we're not just stuck with these three quotes that I showed you. We have other material to consider. So let's consider that ever so briefly. This is from the same document on first principles, book one, chapter three. This is Greek fragment number nine, and we read the following. The God and Father who holds the universe together is superior to every being that exists, for he imparts to each one from his own existence that which each one is, the Son being less than the Father is superior to rational creatures alone, for he is second to the Father. You can't say that. That's against the rules. He goes on. The Holy Spirit is still less and dwells within the saints alone, so that in this way, the power of the Father is greater than that of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and that of the Son is more than that of the Holy Spirit. And in turn, the power of the Holy Spirit exceeds that of every other holy being. So what we have here is a whole lot of subordinationism, that's what that is. How many times do we see it? She says the father is superior. Then he says the son is less than the father. Then he says the son is second to the father. Then he says the spirit is less. And then he says the father is greater than the son and the spirit. Right? And this is clearly subordinationism. Furthermore, in another book against Celsus, 8:15, Origin writes. For we who say that the visible world is under the government to him who created all things do thereby declare that the Son is not mightier than the Father, but inferior to him. Is that confusing? It's very clear he's not mightier, but he's inferior. And this belief we ground on the saying of Jesus himself, the Father who sent me is greater than I. You know, Jesus said that. And none of us is so insane as to affirm that the Son of Man is Lord over God. But when we regard the Savior as God, the Word, and wisdom, and righteousness, and truth, we certainly do say that he has dominion over all things which have been subjected to him in his capacity, but not that his dominion extends over the God and Father who rules over all. I mean, look at these statements from Origen in this book against Celsus. It's plain as day. Origen thought God, the Father, was superior to the Son. So then, if that's true, why in the world did he say earlier they're all equal? Let's go through a little bit of a timeline. Shall we? Origen was born about 186, and in 225, he completed this magnum opus on first principles. It's the first systematic theology book ever written. He died in 253. His works have a lot of an afterlife, as it turns out. So in 300, by the early 4th century, Methodius criticizes Origen for eternity of creation, pre-existence of souls, and a spiritual resurrection body. In 325, of course, the Council of Nicaea anathematizes subordinationism. That was the whole point of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea's whole point was to say that the son is on the same level as the father. They are, they are equal. They are of the same substance. So that is something that goes against what Origen, we just, we just saw him saying. But then there's this 60-year battle where the pro-Nicaeans and the anti nicene Christians both claim Origen for support for their position. He's at the heart of the whole debate that lasts for 60 years, from 325 to 381. And then in the end, Emperor Theodosius made Nicene Doctrine law. But that's not the end of the story for Origen, because even before that happened, a heresy hunter named Epiphanius of Salamis led a crusade against Origen's writings. From 375 to 395, a 20-year crusade against Origen in print, by petition, and through preaching. And at one point, this Epiphanius travels all the way to Jerusalem, because in Jerusalem you have the Bishop John at this time. This is the late 4th century, almost 5th century. You have the Bishop John of Jerusalem. You have Jerome, the famous translator of the Bible into Latin, which was later then called the Vulgate. And then you also have Rufinus. And Rufinus and Jerome, they're like big, big-time translators, really important people to get things into Latin if you want you know a lot of people to read your your works if they're written in Greek you need you need translators to do that and so epiphanius shows up at church and he he just basically preaches against origen now never mind the fact origen's been dead well over a century and he's getting preached against this uh, epiphanius he's an older man and he and he's just on a rampage against origen and he flips jerome after this meeting with at jerusalem jerome no longer supports origen won't translate his works actually that's not true he does translate one more thing just to prove how bad Origin is, and how you shouldn't listen to him. Uh, but he, after this, he's no longer an Originist; he's an anti-Originist, whereas Rufinus responds by translating on first principles in the year 397 into Latin. That's the book that we had these juicy quotes from in the beginning that made us think that Origen's a Trinitarian. After that happens, just three years later, Bishop Theophilus condemns Origen at a council in Alexandria. I'm not going to give you all the history of Origen's after effects, but I will conclude with Emperor Justinian in the year 543. This is 300 years after the book was written. Emperor Justinian condemns Origen as a heretic and orders all of his books to be burned. That's the afterlife. And so this stage right here in the middle where Rufinus translates this book, and this is the translation that we have that survives, this one from Rufinus, is in the midst of controversy. Furthermore, it's at the very tail end of the 4th century. The Trinity had been established for decades, right? And really made law since 381. So what does that mean? Let me have G.W. Butterworth tell you what that means. He's a translator of Origins First Principle. He says about Rufinus, the guy who preserved the book in Latin, fear of heresy, this is just like the the best insult ever. You ready? Fear of heresy is with him a stronger motive than love of truth. (sighs) May that never be said of you. You should never fear people more than your love of the truth. Fear of heresy, this is about Rufinus, is with him a stronger motive than love of truth. He has shown himself willing to alter the text or to omit portions of it on no evidence whatever and for no purpose except to conciliate the prejudices of his readers and to give greater authority to his translation. Butterworth continues, this is all from his introduction, of these 43 Greek fragments that have survived. So what we have is the Latin translation of Rufinus. We have it, okay? And then we have 43 little Greek pieces of On First Principles that have made it to today. He says 14 are entirely missing from the text of Rufinus. We have Greek parts of On First Principles that literally don't exist in the Latin translation. Rufinus cut them out. Nope, not going to translate that. And then he says nine are shortened. Altered or incomplete, five are inaccurately translated, and the remaining 15 are given with reasonable, though not always strict, accuracy. But what I love about this whole issue is that Rufinus himself wasn't coy. He tells us what he was doing in his preface. In his translation of Origen's First Principles, Rufinus himself says, Wherever, therefore, I have found in his books, Origen's books, anything contrary to the reverent statements made by him about the Trinity in other places, I have either omitted it as a corrupt and interpolated passage or reproduced it in a form that agrees with the doctrine, which I have often found him affirming elsewhere. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why when Slick quotes from On First Principles, it sounds uncannily Trinitarian. And that's why in these other places that I quoted to you from, he sounds like a subordinationist. Rufinus corrupted Origen to make him sound orthodox. And he says he did it. He's not even shy. Origen was not a Trinitarian. Where where, where does that leave us? We saw Polycarp, no evidence that he believed in the Trinity. Justin Martyr, no evidence he believed in the Trinity. Ignatius of Antioch, we didn't even get, you know, anything really historical there, but what we had still didn't believe in the Trinity. Irenaeus, we had nothing for him. You know, he's clearly a subordinationist, Tertullian. He has an interesting theory, but it's not It's not what we would call orthodox from a Trinitarian perspective. And now Origen, yeah, sure, if you quote the late 4th century 397 edition of his work that has been bowderlized to sound very Nicene, yeah, sure, then he's a Trinitarian. But that's really Rufinus. That's not Origen. Origen is a subordinationist, and that's why the Arians grabbed him. The Nicenes liked Origen because he invented eternal generation, which is a necessary component. The anti liked him because he taught that the father was superior to the son. And I also have a number of other quotes and, and information in the paper if you want to go deeper. You know, obviously I'm skipping around because I don't want to go too long here with you. All right, so we've looked at all these things and, and how are we left? We are left empty-handed. Now, of course, this doesn't mean no one believed in the Trinity before Nicaea. But it does mean that everything we've looked at so far, the six big shots that we were hoping to find, the Trinity, none of them actually had it. And so I I came up with this analogy. It's an Instagram analogy. Anybody here know what Instagram is? Okay, there's like five people and, you know, no. Okay, you've you've heard of it before. It's been around for a little while. It's a social media service. Let's say someone in the year 2019 says the statement, I love using Instagram. Well, that's the, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's a social media app used to take pictures apply filters, and then share them with followers, all right? So you take a picture, and then you put a filter on it to make it look good, and then you send it out, and all your followers can like it, if they like it. Of course, that's a whole other subject. All right, so that's what we're talking about here. You ready? What if a lady in 2005 says, I love using Instagram? What would that mean? Instagram did not exist until 2010. There had to be some explanation, if somebody in 2019 says, I love using Instagram, that's no big deal. We know Instagram is, is a company, it's a service, it's an app on your phone, right? There's nothing interesting about that statement. But if somebody in 2005 says it, whoa, this thing didn't exist for five years. How could she love using Instagram? Well, maybe she's come across a recipe to instantly cook chickpeas, also called grams. Instagrams. Or... Maybe she just got married and she got an instant grandmother out of the arrangement. An Instagram. You could probably come up with other examples of what Instagram in 2005 could possibly mean. But the point is, we'd have to come up with some sort of explanation for what she means by Instagram before Instagram existed. So it is with the Trinity. You can't just say Trinity before the Trinity exists. And we're supposed to all believe that that means the same thing that they worked out later. Think about it some more with me, this analogy here. What if somebody really did want to prove it? And they said, you know what? I believe there's a conspiracy on Wikipedia. Instagram didn't start in 2010. I believe it did start in 2005 and I'm going to prove it. How would that person go about doing it? Well, they would probably find quotations from people in 2005 saying things like, I love to take digital photos. And they would find them saying things like, I love to adjust my photos or put filters on my photos. And they would find them saying something like, I wanted to share them instantly with my friends. Well, those of you who were here in the 90s can relate to this. But you know what? We actually had digital cameras in the 90s. Forget 2005, okay? And we had Photoshop since the 80s, in fact. So we've been applying filters to photos all through the 90s. No big deal. We had AOL Instant Messenger at the end of the 90s, didn't we? So, you know, you could find quotes of people saying, oh, I just love taking digital pictures and applying filters and sharing them with my friends online in 2005. And it doesn't necessarily prove Instagram existed back then, does it? Because we could do that using other services. Furthermore, what if they also found that person saying, I love to share it on social media? That would be the clincher, right? Pictures, filters, sharing with friends, social media... It's got to be Instagram. Well, guess what else existed in 2005? MySpace and an early version of Facebook. So that, again, it doesn't prove anything. To prove Instagram existed in 2005, we would need evidence that these components, taking photos, adding filters, sharing them online, were done as part of the Instagram service. Perhaps there was an early beta test of Instagram five years before the real version came out. It would be a tough but not impossible case to prove. And the burden of proof would be on the person positing the existence of Instagram before 2010. So it is with the Trinity. We know the Trinity didn't emerge fully formed until the 4th century. Some might even argue that it was later than the 4th century. But we'll just say 4th century for right now. We know it wasn't codified until the Creed of Constantinople, the Constantinopolitan Creed of 381. Not the Nicene Creed, which didn't include the Holy Spirit. That's what we know historically. So you want to show me quotes about the Trinity saying, oh, well, he believed in Jesus. Well, Gnostics believed in Jesus too. He believed they are of one substance. Well, what do you think modalists believe? Or the Manichaeans? Arius makes his point to his bishop, well, I, I don't want to say omosia, because that phrase is used by Manny and the Manichaeans, and that's a, that's a heresy phrase. I don't want to use that, which then later becomes the central phrase that people use. We have components, but no actual Trinity. Furthermore, what did we see with these six different authors that we looked at? We saw not only uh, a lack of evidence, but several statements that directly contradicted the later doctrine of the Trinity. So you can't possibly be a Trinitarian if what you say contradicts the doctrine of the Trinity. We have some theories in that direction, but we can't presuppose the Trinity in order to prove the Trinity. That's just not right. Now, I realize this is a very limited foray into church history. We just looked at these six authors A proper study would involve several years, probably a team of researchers, to go through everything, catalog it all objectively, and put it into different categories. And that would be, uh, obviously, like a a PhD-level research project or just like a regular weekend for Keegan. But um, (laughs) having said that, there is someone who has done such a thing, and his name is Alvin Lampson. This is what he writes at the conclusion of his 395-page book. He says... After what has been said in the foregoing 395 pages, we are prepared to reassert in conclusion that the modern doctrine of the Trinity is not found in any document or relic belonging to the church of the first three centuries. And look at how thorough he is. Letters, art, usage, theology, worship, creed, hymn, chant, doxology, ascription, commemorative rite, and festive observance, so far as remains or any record of them are preserved, coming down from early times, are, as regards this doctrine, an absolute blank. They testify, so far as they testify at all, to the supremacy of the Father, the only true God, and to the inferior and derived nature of the Son. There is nowhere among these remains a co-equal trinity. The cross is there, Christ is there as a good shepherd, the father's hand placing a crown or victor's wreath on his head, but no undivided three, co-equal, infinite, self-existent, and eternal. This was a conception to which the age had not arrived. It was of later origin. First of all, I want to say, I'm willing to dismiss Lamson's conclusion if somebody brings forth evidence of somebody believing in the Trinity in the first three centuries. I mean, I... It, I don't have to necessarily agree one way or the other with what any church history person wrote, right? I mean, that would be like me taking you to the the local Christian bookstore and saying, you know, you have to agree with all these books. All those books don't agree with themselves. We Christians have written books from the beginning. There's something sacred about the books we wrote in the first three centuries. The books of Christianity that are sacred are the ones that are inspired and authoritative and we call Bible all right? The rest of it all is just what people thought it all meant, or how they worked it out in their lives. And we've contradicted ourselves all throughout history, different groups and so on. And so there's no pressure here. There's no pressure. If somebody believes one thing or believes another thing, it's history. You just say, oh, so-and-so believed that. Okay. So if somebody wants to produce that evidence, I'm definitely willing to hear it.
1: When the Trinity's podcast returns, Pastor Finnegan asks, Okay, but what about the deity of Christ? Don't these sources show early belief in the deity of Christ?
2: the more basic question of the deity of christ that's a much more basic question isn't it the problem with that as i mentioned before is that you can't just say jesus is god and say that must mean that he's of one substance with the father co-equal and co-eternal because you didn't say that lots of christians mean different things when they say jesus is god you can be a biblical unitarian and say jesus is god you could be an Aryan, a subordinationist, and believe that Jesus is God. You can be a Gnostic. You can be a Modalist. You can be. Everybody says it in one way or another. Or even look at this: the Hebrew mindset had no problem applying the word "God" in a secondary sense to Moses, angels, the divine council, Israel's judges, the Davidic king, the belly, those who receive the word of God, and even Satan. In the Greco-Roman world, furthermore, they called a wide range of beings gods including the pantheon of high gods, regional gods, deceased emperors, and a whole host of other lower-level divinities. Now, let's say you're telling a random person in the 2nd century about Jesus. Just think with me for a moment, this little thought experiment. You live in the 2nd century in the Roman Empire, you're telling your average Greco-Roman pagan about Jesus. They worship all these different statues, they believe the, the heavens are populated with all these spiritual beings. And you're telling this person about Jesus. You tell her that Jesus came back to life after crucifixion. He is living in heaven at the most powerful and honored position next to the Father. A Greco-Roman person would have no problem calling much lesser beings gods. In other words, God was a flexible word during the early centuries of Christianity, and we need to take that into account when trying to classify what patristic authors believed about Jesus. Now, on to one last issue here. There is a tendency among church historians to say, so-and-so was trying to articulate the Trinity, but you just didn't have the language for it yet. (laughs) Or so-and-so really believed in the Trinity, but they just couldn't quite explain it. Okay, these kinds of assessments and and sort of editorializing, it's all throughout the literature. you know, if you read any kind of like historical theology textbook, this is what they say over and over again, and it's just like infuriating. That's not how we do history, people. How we do history is, you say what the person said. What did that person believe? Okay, now if you want to judge it based on what was going to come later and say, oh, it's not, it's not the same as that, or it is the same, whatever, that's fine. But you don't say, oh, well, they really believe this other thing. They just didn't have any way to say that. That's like saying people in the 1800s believe in relativity theory. They just didn't have Einstein to give them that word yet. No, they didn't believe in relativity theory. Einstein invented that. I mean, he discovered it in 1905 in the Swiss patent office, right? Or quantum theory. People in the early 1900s didn't believe in quantum theory. You know why? Because it, it wasn't discovered yet. It's not that you just didn't have words for it. <laughs> Anyhow, that's just a, a little correction there. Tertullian did not believe in the Trinity. He did not believe in the Trinity. He had a Trinity theory. He had a theory, but it did not agree with what we call the Trinity as defined earlier in this presentation. He believed that the Father alone was a supreme God. He believed that the Father had more divine stuff than the Son. So it's dishonest to label Tertullian a Trinitarian. But I bet you look online, you search for Tertullian and Trinity, and you will find thousands of little offhand remarks saying, our oh, Tertullian was the first Trinitarian. He coined the term Trinity. He Look at this, one substance, right? Well, read the rest of the book. Read the rest of the book. No pressure to, to take him as a Trinitarian, anyhow, because, it, okay, he wasn't a Trinitarian. That's, that's not the end of the world. Doesn't mean the Trinity's false. Doesn't mean the Trinity's true. It just means that he wasn't one. So we don't need to squeeze everyone into our predetermined mold. Let them be who they are. I've got much more to say about this. Take a look at the paper if you have it, or you can get it online at restitutio.org uh, articles. But I just want to conclude with the following. It's time for the Matt Slicks of the world to drop this myth of Trinitarian primacy and just admit that Trinity theories evolved slowly over the first 400 years after Christ until we ended up with the language of the Constantinopolitan Creed of 381, Augustine's on the Trinity in 415, and the so-called Athanasian Creed of probably around 500. Well, after Athanasius was dead, by the way. That doesn't mean the Trinity is wrong, but it does move it from authoritative apostolic tradition to one of several models of understanding the Bible, The idea is that the scriptures don't explicitly teach the Trinity, but the Trinity doctrine is the best explanation of what they say about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But if it was the best explanation, if the Trinity is the best explanation for what the Bible says about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why didn't anyone see it that way during the first three centuries? This is a good question to leave you with. If you are researching this issue, I encourage you to read the New Testament with fresh eyes, approaching the text from a first-century mindset rather than a creedal one. After all, the truth has nothing to fear. Thank you.
1: When the Trendy's podcast returns, Q&A time featuring a few voices you might recognize.
3: To the Athanasian Creed, which is dated as late as 1000 AD. Yeah. And it was accepted by the Pope in Rome, as far as I know, as late as 1100 AD. is the only true Trinitarian Creed, as far as I know. You mentioned the 381, mm-hmm. but if Dr. Deltagy has said all the creeds all the before the nation begin with the line, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. So Dr. Bell has said they are confused Unitarians. So the question is, okay, I think he said 381, you consider the first Trinitarian creed. Wanna...
2: If I could just bite off that right there and chew on it for a second before you continue. As part of doing this, I worked on the Creed of 381. The Nicene Creed is fine, it just doesn't have the Holy Spirit, so it's uninteresting from a Trinitarian perspective. There's not really anything to talk about from a, you know, from a Christological perspective or a Binitarian perspective, sure, let's talk about Nicaea, but to 381 we must go if we want to do otherwise. So I, I just did a very literal English translation of the Greek here on, on the one side, uh, comparing it. So on the right side, we believe in one God, the Father— the almighty maker of heaven and earth and of all that is seen and is unseen and in one Lord Jesus Christ. You can easily interpret this in a non-Trinitarian way as somebody who affirms that Jesus is a God offspring of the high God who was brought into existence before all ages. That doesn't necessarily mean the Trinity. I mean, it obviously includes the Trinity, but I think it's clear, Carlos, though, even if this creed isn't as Trinitarian as it really should be, the people who wrote the creed and wrote about it later on in their other writings and so on, they did believe in it in a Trinitarian way. I think we can meaningfully speak of the Trinity in the 4th century, even though the creed leaves something to be desired, if that's really what we want it to say.
3: Yeah, that sounds a lot like First Corinthians 8.6, actually. Yeah. One God the Father and one Lord Jesus. What do you make of the Theodosian, the so-called Theodosian Code? dated as early as the 300s, which does have Trinitarian language. It says we believe in one deity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And that's dated to as early as 312.
2: Yeah, I, I think I would disagree with the dating on that. The code includes prior law, you know what I mean? Where but you
3: date the Trinitarian language? What date
2: do you date the... I, I took that as late 4th century. I could check on that, but it, the way that code works is that it's quoting previous laws in previous statements, and they're all from different eras. So it's a little tricky to figure out what refers to what. I could look into it.
4: Thanks for that, Sean. That was epic. <laughs> I,
2: just,
4: I just have a very pedantic... <laughs> uh, well, for, first about the 381 thing. Uh, I think at that time they're assuming that if the three are one Lucia, that makes them one God. But yeah, it's really there isn't really any. Language in the creed that demands this idea of a dragon god. Um, although, you know, me as the Arian, like the next year after, is complaining about it in a way that sounds like he understood it an to be Trinitarian. And a few years after that, you have Augustine, who's just right, sure.
2: right, right.
4: And he stupidly thinks they've always taught this because that's what he was told when he, when he became Christian, you know, the three eighties. Yeah, but anyway, so my, my pedantic point was. I would say that before 381, they didn't have trinity theories, they had triad, triadic theologies. Right. They had theologies where God was one of a heavenly triple, like some of the middle platonists in the first two Christian centuries, and they, they jumped in for that fashion, but like, well, we, got, we got a triad too, and God's the founding member, as you pointed out. Yeah. I mean, if the Trinity theory is a theory about the triune God, then just because you have views about the Father, Son, and Spirit doesn't mean you have a Trinity theory. It might just be a triadic theology.
2: Yeah. Terminology can be a little tricky here.
4: that's a
0: point.
2: No, I appreciate it. No, thank you.
0: I've noticed there tends to be a, a disconnect between popular presentations of topics like Trinity. In my case, the talk I just hear about, agency, where the scholarly world recognizes agency. They're somewhat hesitant to to apply it to passages that we looked at today, but they do mention it, and they're going to give at least some kind of a nod, you know, there's agency involved here. They don't want to go the whole way and say, hey, Jesus is a man, that was sent by God. But there's still a disconnect. Mm-hmm. Between the scholarly presentation, sometimes it really is somebody says, No, that passage is not talking about the deity of Jesus. They'll look at John 10.30, where Jesus says, I, am I and the Father are one. They'll say, No, Jesus isn't really talking about being God there. You know, there's another way to interpret it. And every now and then you'll get like an honest scholar. Yeah. But does it doesn't seem to filter <laughs> down to the popular presentation and pastors and so forth. I right, so right. wonder, is there a similar disconnect in the scholarly world between the presentation of the Trinitarian doctrine's development and a guy like Matt. Like yeah, a,
2: absolutely. A yeah. yeah.
0: So I could see it on the Catholics. They could probably care less oh, and yeah. think that this is found in the Bible and that Trinitarians are you know, forever, because they can get a development and it. Mm-hmm. But are there evangelical yeah. scholars that say, hey, you know what?
2: Trinity developed. Right. Uh, I, I would love to, f- to meet such a person. What I've seen is, uh, you know, the Justo Gonzalez book is just the worst for the record. Just going to throw that out there. Um, that's the church history book that most Bible colleges are going to use. And uh, it's called, I don't know, Story of Christianity or something. When they come to the 4th century, they to- he totally whitewashes it and just papers it over, oh yeah, we always believe in the Trinity, there is this evil heretic who came from the outside and challenged it, and we, we fought him off, and he was like a virus foreign to the body of Christ, and, and we, we defeated him with the white blood cells of Athanasius and Augustine and the Cappadocians. Yeah, okay. That's not at all true. Arius was an old dude when this thing happened, and he was a conservative. Uh, he was 62 when the, when the controversy broke out, because his bishop said Jesus is eternal, and Arius was like, that's not what you taught us. That's not what I taught my church. And so Arius got fired, right? So, I mean, that's, that's really the, the, the starting point for this thing in the year 318. So what I'm saying is there are bad evangelical church history books out there. I don't say they're just like not good. I say they're bad because they're not just omitting information. They're twisting it to make it sound different than it re- what it really is. And then you have proper church history textbooks that aren't any more difficult to read that are used more at uh, a seminary level, uh, Lynch, something or other Lynch. Phenomenal. He doesn't call it the Arian controversy. He calls it the Trinitarian controversy because Arius wasn't starting, he wasn't starting some big controversy, you know, like, I'm going to straighten you all. That wasn't Arius, you know, like he got fired and then he tried to find somebody else to help him out, the other Eusebian bishops. This Trinitarian thing, continue to cause controversy during that whole period from 318 to 381. So actually the book I would recommend above all else, if you were just going to read one book and God bless you, if you actually get all the way through it, because it's thick, uh, is the one by RPC Hansen, a search for a Christian doctrine of God or something. He's kind of Anglican, I think, you know, sometimes the Anglicans are hit or miss, you know, sometimes you, you get real great combination between honesty and believing in stuff. Not always, but, uh, His book does a great job telling you everything from a much more objective mindset. You know, he's not pushing the Trinity. He's not pushing one God. He's just like, all right, this is what happened. His chapter on Athanasius is the most damning thing I've ever read about this guy. And don't name your kids Athanasius. He was a bad guy. Whatever the opposite of a saint is, what he should be called. But yet, he's not just a saint. He's a doctor of the church. Athanasius was a straight-up thug. And he used leg breakers, and he pushes pushes weight around. Dale has a great reading. He's got an Athanasius voice he does on his podcast. Uh, If you haven't heard it, check it out. Uh, Trinity's podcast. Look up the one on Athanasius. I think he, like, clenches his teeth more when he he reads from Athanasius. Really brings it out. But uh, what I would say, Bill, is that your average evangelical doesn't care about church history. They care about the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And when they're introduced to church history in Bible college, or in seminary, they're given some text that is just not telling them the truth, just leaving it out entirely, or straight up lying to them, using myths that are easily disprovable by consulting the primary documents. It's actually very uncommon for evangelicals to really care about church history, because Catholics have really dominated that market for so many centuries. But you know what? Hey, I think it's important. I think it's important to know what the Bible says first, but then also how we got off track. I I, I think that's a helpful story to tell.
3: Yeah, thanks again, John, for what you did. It was awesome. Uh, this isn't as much of a question as a comment. I was just surprised when we looked at the quote from Churchillian, the first one on page four, that um, that the guy used for part of like evidence for uh, Trinity in the early century. Like in the middle, it literally contradicts itself within two sentences. It'll say they are three. Not in substance, but in form, and then not in power, but in kind. And the following
4: sense right after that says they are one substance in power. <laughs> just
2: says... No, I can help you with that. I can help you with that. Uh, you have to read that one carefully. These guys, uh, you know, they might not believe the same as we do, but but they're actually really smart. You know, what I just hit you with was like a drive-by. You know, it was just like machine gunned, threw it all out there, didn't give you any time to read it on your own process. I mean, you, these guys, like Tertullian origin, especially Irenaeus too. you have to slowly read them on your own. Think about what are they saying? Because, you know, it is not like the way we talk. In many ways, they're smarter than we are. And so when it says here, they are three, not in dignity. So they're one in dignity, is what he's saying. So they're three, not in dignity, but in degree. So they're, they're three not in substance, so they're not three in substance. They're one in substance, but they're three in form. You see, That's what he's saying. That helps him to be consistent with himself there. Great question, though. Hey, uh, Sean, um, I love your (laughs) tie. Second of all, thank you for this really uh, incredible
0: presentation. You just really packed a lot of uh, great data in here uh, for us. So thank you for all your hard work. Uh, I'm really interested in the question about historical development as it relates to Protestant
4: interpretations of church history. Do you think that the Protestant definition of church
0: doctrine, what that is and where it comes from and how we get it, do you think that precludes the idea of development? Wouldn't a development of what the apostles taught not be preservative, but actually be destructive of church doctrine, according to the Protestant definition? I would just be interested in what you, what comments you might have on whether you think that Protestant Protestantism is, definition of church doctrine compatible <coughs> the idea that church doctrines essential church
2: doctrines can develop over time. I'll answer the rephrased version at the end there cuz that's the easiest. Uh, since you threw the word essential in it makes it a lot <laughs> a lot easier to answer. I would say no. They're not allowed to admit any development whatsoever in the core doctrines of the Christian faith. It's strictly against the sola scriptura principle as well as um, perspicacity uh, I would say as well, uh, because that's the, that's the theory that you have to you you can actually understand the Bible. It's, it's a funny word for that, because uh, uh, the idea that you can actually understand the Bible was was a Protestant idea, and that's certainly William Tyndale, big time, against the establishment. He said, "Look, I think the plowboy can understand this book. And I'm going to put it in his language, and he's going to know more than you." Talking to the bishop across the table, or or whoever, whatever church official that was. The idea is that you can get, you can derive, directly derive every core doctrine of the Christian faith from the Bible alone. Uh, so there's incredible pressure, Catholics don't have this pressure, but there's incredible pressure among evangelicals, among Protestants of, of uh, you know, who take the Bible seriously to make the Bible teach the doctrines they know it's supposed to teach. If, uh, the
3: Trinity was uh, a kind of development and individuals and so forth even from alexander that people believe that there was more than one or that there were two or there were three so what would be the year and what council would it be for us to uh so that uh the kind penitenti- was given for uh, publication and saying that we established there was maybe the catholic church uh, took all of it and then with uh, would it
2: the council of council on? No, it really depends on how narrowly you want to find. I've just tried to be gracious to the whole situation. Just give them 381 and say, "Hey, look, you know, this is you're clearly trying to say something Trinitarian, but you're you're stuck with this like old lingo that is inherently Unitarian, passed down from the Apostles' Creed, one God, the Father, Maker of you know they they're stuck with that, and so they're working within that framework and trying to make a one-god creed into a three-god creed, and they're doing the best they can by 381 to try to make that happen. But I, I I think there's probably still a lot of disagreement within the church on exactly how to understand that creed. The point you made about Chalcedon, Chalcedon is uh, 451, and that's about the dual natures. And it just, all it says about the Trinity is, we agree with whatever has come before us, and then they go jump right into the dual natures. I could talk to you about that. We're out of time right now. Uh, just say one thing, which is, on the dual natures, Nestorius is usually painted as the bad guy. But when he heard the creed of Chalcedon, he said, that's all I've been trying to say the whole time. He completely agreed with it. Nestorius was not a nasty heretic. He was, he was a great guy. He believed differently than we do. Uh, but he was run out for political reasons. It was that council in 451 that the church lost Egypt. You know, they just left. They're like, we're not, we don't believe in that. And uh, they're to this day called the Coptic Church, because Coptic is the language of Egypt. So there was every one of these councils causes a church split, so I don't think they're helpful.
1: If you'd like to hear a lot more from Pastor Sean Finnegan, check out his website and podcast at restitutio.org. That's restitutio.org. Also, if you're going to be in the Minneapolis area on May 31st, 2019, I would love to see you at my debate with Chris Date. Our debate question is, Jesus is human and not divine? That'll be at Pine Grove Bible Church in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, at 7 p.m. on May 31st. If you want to find the details for that again, just search Tuggy Date Debate on Facebook or go to kogmissions.com. I hope to see you there. This week's Thinking Music has been the track Recreation by Airtone. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track.